So in his first time back, he got to hit his first time up. Here he comes up with one out in the first. Swings at the first pitch and drives it out to right center field. That ball is gone! A home run for Derek Jeter! He comes back in dramatic fashion, going the other way and hitting a home run and giving the Yankees a 1-0 lead. Don, the, the listeners are anxious to find out details from what will be the first of three, maybe even four or five bro weddings. Yes. Are they? Yeah. <laughs> they're buzzing. They're buzzing. People are clamoring for details. It was fun. I had fun. Yeah, it was a good time. Our wives had fun. Yes, or- they did. Mrs. and Miss Caster tore it up. They even had a uh, Yale hockey player sandwich at one they point did. on the dance floor. They did. Lucky the, fellow. The Yale boys... Uh, Tore up the dance floor with uh, Miss and Mrs. Caster for sure. And your mom was out there quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. At one point, actually, Miss Caster came back and said she was dancing with Connie Agostino, and her underwear ended up being exposed. Yeah. Then her and Mrs. Caster went back, and we looked over, and Tommy Fallon was pinned in between the two of them, looking potentially violated. Yeah, <laughs> he did. Uh, also, I killed it on the speech. Yes. Yeah, I got a standing O. They should have had you go last. They should have. The problem was the other guys were pretty nervous. And because three guys are giving a speech, we knew one person had to give a toast, and that made the most sense last. Okay. And someone had to thank everyone. Well, mm. nobody wanted to thank everyone, anyone. So I kind of had to do that, and that seemed to make the most sense first. I see. So that's why I went first, and Dean went last because he had to do... The toast. Probably no one heard a word Dean said, I would imagine. <laughs> I heard some of it. But, um, yeah, it was great. All 191 people after the speech, I stood up. It's so like a three-minute standing O. Right, right. Yeah, so that was pretty dramatic. But uh, all in all, a very great, great wedding. So congratulations to Greg and Laura once again. And uh, welcome to Season 3, Episode 19 of the Sportscasters. It is July 30th, 2013. Got a great show for you today. Elizabeth Merrill. On the show today, kind of as a result of a challenge laid out from our buddy Richard Deitch, who said, for some females. reason we don't have any females, essentially ignoring the fact that we have Jane Levy on quite regularly, yep. Fat Katie Baker on somewhat regularly, we've also had Sarah Kwok on a couple times, and then, well, Katie and it. Katie and Sarah are both hockey though, right? Right. So that's part of the issue, is not, it's not hockey season. Right, and Jane is, is baseball, but she's been kind of quiet. This yeah. summer. Uh, but we have two females on today. Elizabeth Merrill that I mentioned, who's from ESPN.com. That might be a first in itself. Two females? Two females at once. Yeah, that, that very easily could be a first. Yep. And then Jenny Vrentes from the Monday Morning Quarterback, Peter King's new site. We had Greg uh, Bedard last week. Jenny's going to join us this week. So two of the three non-Peter King staff writers in consecutive <laughs> right. weeks at that site. And then something kind of different. We have a guy named Ron... Mateko, who is the president of a company called MVP Media, who has put out a iPad-only sports magazine right. called MVP Magazine. We'll find out what that's all about uh, from Ron later in the show. Also, we have a book club update today. 
Uh, we got a ton of responses. This is the nice thing about our increase in Twitter followers is we can effectively crowdsource now, which is something that we didn't necess- weren't necessarily able to do in our more modest Twitter follower days of 10 days ago. Yes. You know, now that we have a little bit of a bigger Twitter following, there's, it's a lot easier to crowdsource. And during our Five on Fantasy, we'll read some of the responses we got to trying to find out what some of the unique rules are out there. And I found out there isn't necessarily that many. A lot of people really do like to play a pretty standard league, it seems like. Yep. A lot of people I reached out to that specifically, because I do have some responses from people who specifically are, are more known people as opposed to just random, and you'll find out that they basically like to play it pretty close to the vest. But we'll get into that during Five on Fantasy, and then we'll close out with one last thing. Let's get it started. Oh, wait. Before we get it started, we haven't introduced ourselves, which is a common problem. <laughs> My name is Steve Bennett. You're Don Russ. Correct. We should mention we're on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. You can find our work, including last week's show with Greg Bedard at www.sports-casters.com. Also, Damon Hack was on last week. Uh, you can find that there. And um, that should do it. Now we can start. Three things. Roll it. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty, I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Alright, first thing today. Last Sunday was the last Sunday without a football game in the year 2013. That's right. Which means training camps are open across the league, and Don and I are going to tag team this first thing. And unfortunately, the first week of camp, the news has been dominated with some pretty significant injuries already. Yeah, Dennis Pitta, uh, tight end from Baltimore, done for the year with a hip injury. Uh, Jeremy Macklin, done for the year with an ACL injury. Uh, Philadelphia also losing Jason Phillips, who is like a backup linebacker, special teamer guy, but also with an ACL injury. Same Leg, Same too, leg, is right? Macklin. ACL, yep. Strange. And Dan Coppin, the center from Denver, done for the year. Starting center. So not this is the best and worst time of the year. You said there's no more no more Sundays without football, and that in itself is great. The, the downside is now it's going to feel even more like, okay, when does football start? When does real football start? Uh, you you kind of watch – preseason games with one eye with one hand covering your eyes right holding your breath don't get hurt yep. just don't get hurt for these stupid games i remember a saints game i think it was the 1997 season they lost three starters for the year in one preseason game against the jets yeah it's brutal so i mean you th- that's this thing you you worry about and i guess you know this week has shown that the war of attrition or whatever starts now yep yeah, unfortunately there's... that's true uh two guys too that uh, on the injury report, I guess you could say, if there were an injury report right now, it would be Mario Williams and Percy Harvin. Uh, I guess people from Houston and Minnesota right now would be saying... Told you. Yes. Yeah. So the big question is, are these really injuries? Especially in Minnesota. Right. Well, Harvin has been known to legitimately get hurt. Yep. But some people question whether or not he just doesn't want to play preseason stuff too but mario williams that's kind of his reputation too and 
people make the comparison to Bruce Smith as far as Bruce never played in the preseason, but and there's Bruce just no information. Superstar. There's no information, right. which is helping the conspiracy theories build because neither coach really wants to talk about it. Actually, there's a little bit of a standoff today at Bills camp between Marone and the reporter trying to press for a little bit more information. Right. So things are really, uh, really quiet there, and that. Another thing this week that's been interesting is it's the first camp for several head coaches around the league. Chip Kelly has been, right? you know, obviously really interesting to see what he's doing and Marone here in Buffalo. And actually kind of an interesting wedding story. When we went to pick up our suits for the wedding, uh, EJ Manuel was in the building. Really? Picked up some, uh, some attire to take with him to Rochester, apparently. Cool. Yeah, he was getting measured up. Um, outside of the camp so far... Terrell Brown, this is kind of a preseason story, too. He lost $2 million for not participating. And I'm not sure if they were optional workouts or what. But the the, the 49ers off-season workout program, he did not participate in. And all he had to do was participate in that, and his salary would have gone from $950,000 to $2.95 million. Someone got fired. Yes. He immediately turned around and fired his agent. Terrell Brown said it was a huge mistake. Had he known, he obviously would have been there. I'm surprised the 49ers didn't remind him of that. Yeah. Yeah, really. (laughs) You think that's like the first day they're looking around they're like, hey, he's not here. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Saved two million bucks. This is great. And according to sources, doctors have cleared RG3's knee for light tearing. That's the onion <laughs> says that. He says he's not playing any preseason games, huh? He says he's he not shouldn't. interesting. He shouldn't. Interested I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to see him anywhere. I wouldn't even want him on the sideline. I Just stay home. We'll see you week one. All right, my second thing today. It's a new trend out there on the internet. Peter Gammons this week is launching his own site, which is going to be called Gammons Daily. Of course, Grantland, uh, headed by Bill Simmons, was launched by ESPN over a year ago now. And just last week... Peter King's The Morning Quarterback was launched by Sports Illustrated. The difference here is that Gammon's Daily isn't a Major League Baseball-related site or USA Today or any of those outlets. It's being funded through something called True Media, an outfit that calls itself an engineering firm with a focus on sports analytics. They do, among other things, graphic for broadcast. This is from Deadspin.com. Okay. Uh, there's also a, sing- a signal that the Gammon site may not be all that well financed. Uh, Gammons and True Media apparently need some further support. Sports Business Daily said that Gammons and True Media are conducting an online crowdfunding campaign using the Indiegogo platform to help support the initiative. Donors to DammonsDaily.com yeah, like will have access to a daily ebook, Google handout, personal thank you tweets, scorebig.com gift cards and other prizes so i guess you have a chance to get at the ground floor here with gammons daily if you're interested Hmm. do you think he carries the weight that peter king i mean i mean in the baseball world he's probably pretty on par to peter king thing is is we've kind of lost track of him a bit because he left espn espn and their platforms to go to major league baseball network and if you're not a huge baseball fan you might not go into major league baseball network like you would espn right so all right, my second story has to do with baseball as well. Ryan Braun, we all heard about his story last week. Well, a fan with his jersey, uh, if you follow jersey fouls and stuff like from Wyshynski, this would probably be a jersey foul. 
but they've taped over the B and the N in brawn and made an F in the D spelling fraud. Well, apparently they thought in the stadium, stadium security thought that that violated the fan code of conduct. That's crazy. Yeah, that kind of pissed me off a little bit almost because shouldn't employing, I mean, I'm not saying that the Brewers knew he was a drug user, but maybe they should go out of their way. He was a fraud. Yeah. Uh, he's he's not going to get that woman's that woman's not going to get her money back from buying her favorite player's jersey or whatever. So, I don't know. She's a little annoyed. Let her write fraud on the jersey. What does it matter? What are they, 20 games out of playoffs? I mean, their season's over. They should just be happy she's in the stadium. And I guess they're going to try to to encourage people to come. Any fan that attends a Brewers game in August is going to re- receive a $10 voucher they can use on food or future tickets or uh, souvenirs. And that's that's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's that's an example of the the team or their staff doing one thing bad or overreacting and doing something good on the other other end of the spectrum. All right, my third thing today. It's getting closer and closer to football season, as we said. And Bovada.lv, which is the former Bodog, okay, an online sports LV gambling. Yeah, what's that? I don't know. Usually, those codes have to do with a country, uh, but I bet you they bought it because of Las Vegas. Oh, uh, hoping that that will turn into something. Because what was the one that was going to be? There's always one that people would use for porn. I can't remember, but it's some country code that just kind of sounds dirty or something like that, but it's actually some country. Same with that. I bet you LV is... We got some uh, LV information here, courtesy of Wikipedia. Okay. It is the... Yep. A few sites apparently using it to suggest Las Vegas, much as .LA is used for Los Angeles, or love is in .my.LV. So it's either Vegas or love. Uh... Bovada, formerly known as Bodog, moved to .lv domain after Homeland Security confiscated its former domain, Bodog.com. Hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. So anyway, uh, Bodog is, or Bovada now, has up win totals for the season, and some of them are pretty interesting. One that stuck out is how high the Patriots are. Yeah. Theirs is at 11, which means you need 12 to win. What do you think? Where would you go here, over or under, for the for the Patriots. Well, the AFC East might be the worst division in football right now, so they have that going for them. Because I, I know people have tried to put a fork in the Patriots year after year, and this feels like the year that this has got to be too much for them to overcome, right? They have seven. There's seven leading, leading receivers as of yesterday from last year. We're not practicing with the team. Uh, I guess one of them being Danny Woodhead, who will be back, and Gronkowski, who might be back by the start of the season, but still, that means they're missing five of their top seven receivers from last year. Brady's another year older, but the division is really bad. Uh, that's really high, though. Interestingly, the worst odds you can get right now is the Saints over, which is minus 150 for nine. Wow. As a Saints fan, you got to think that's low. Unless, that's why the odds are so bad. Right, unless Everyone must be throwing my... I, I would be devastated if the Saints don't go over nine this year. Unless you think the opposite. I mean, they could lose two to Atlanta. Uh, could, They yep. could lose the New England game. Right. And then they would have to lose four more, huh? Boy, that, it'd be hard to see them losing four more. Does Tampa usually play them close? I know they didn't last year. They didn't last. I mean, 42 nothing the last time right. the two teams played. 
And the Saints beat them the other time as well. Although Carolina's kind of a rival, right? Like Carolina always find. I mean, the Carolina beat them in the Super Bowl season. Right, right. So did Tampa, actually. But boy, nine. I know that division's good. It's that must. The thinking there must be the same. Well, the opposite as the New England thinking. And my expectations are high for the Saints this year, though. So if that doesn't go over, I would be very frustrated with the season. What do you think the Bills is? Uh. Six and a half. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's plus 110 for the over, minus 140 for the under, which is actually the second worst odds on the site. So that means right now the most money is going to Saints over, second Bills most under. money, Bills under. Yeah, I could see that. I, I mean, it, it all falls on the rookie quarterback, I guess. So it, as preseason goes on, if he looks good, I bet you that line moves a little bit. The Falcons are at 10, which is pretty high. They're minus 135 for the under there, so a lot of money going to their under. Uh, the Broncos are at 11 and a half, which might be the highest one. Yeah. Yeah, that is the highest one. Boy, what what's the money going there? The minus 115 both ways. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's right about right. That'd be a tough one to call. Seahawks are at 10 and a half. Uh, more money going to the over there. I feel like one of the Seahawks or 49ers has to go backwards this year. I don't know why I feel is that. At 11. I don't know why I feel that way, but can that division really have two 11-win teams, 11 and a 12-win team? I mean, I guess they could, but uh, St. Louis played San Francisco super tight last year. I kind of like the Bengals over 8.5. I think the Steelers will be down a little bit this year. The Ravens maybe aren't as good as they were. Well, I mean, they won a Super Bowl, so... Right. Well, yeah. It's, <laughs> but I guess just their roster might right, not be right. as good with some of the guys lost. And now with the Pitta injury. Right. No Bolden there. Flacco's got a lot of money now. You always got to see how a quarterback reacts when they really get paid like that. I don't know. I, I might like the Bengals. And I probably wouldn't have liked it as much last year, and it would have worked for me last year. Right. They're a playoff team, so they definitely went over eight and a half last year. Sure. So that's an interesting one. One more betting thing is there's some odds for the MVP. So who do you think is the favorite to win the MVP? Now, my first guess, we, we, I guessed off the air before we, you cut me off and said right. save it. I guessed Kaepernick. He's third. He's third. Um, Ten to one odds. I would say, I mean, my gut reaction was Adrian Peterson. I just don't feel like that team's good enough. To He's sixth at sixth. 15 to one. Boy, uh, Drew Brees, he is fourth at ten to one with three quarterbacks ahead of him. You know what? I guess a good bet maybe might be Tom Brady because if that team's going to go anywhere, Brady is in the ten to one group with Brees. Huh? Peyton Manning, he's number one at five to one. And then Rodgers is two. Thirteen to two. It's interesting. I guess you're betting on how voters are going to bet. Like if you if you're out there and you think the Patriots are still going to go 13 and three, is there any way they do that? And Brady's not the MVP of the league. No. Right. So, Colin Kaepernick is the other QB at 10 to one. There's some interesting QBs with some really good, like Andrew Luck. You can get 25 to one on your money for Andrew Luck. Yeah, I, that's interesting. I mean, he threw for almost five thousand yards last year as a rookie, right? And a ton of picks. Yeah, uh, he had. Uh, Matthew Barry does his list of 100 facts, and he's right. got some facts that kind of go against Andrew Luck, which were interesting because I would have been really high on him this year, and I guess that's why Matthew Barry is good at what he does. But one of them was like he had the most dropped interceptions in the league. Really? Yeah, he had like seven dropped interceptions. So he could have been even worse than he was. 
where, what do you think the odds are on Russell Wilson? They should be high, but you're saying they're not ten to one. Uh, I don't thirty to one. Eighteen to one. Eighteen. Yeah, I should have guessed. If you want to get thirty to one on your money, you're looking at Arian Foster, Ben Roethlisberger, Cam Newton's maybe interesting at thirty-three to one. Sure. If you, if you think that the, he's, if Joe, they win that division, Cam Newton will be the MVP because they would have beaten out New Orleans, New Orleans, and Atlanta. Yeah, Joe Flacco is fifty to one Super Bowl MVP. That's yeah. kind of interesting. Uh, Andy Dalton is seventy-five to one. Is there a bill even on there, or are they just the field? What, is, what does it cost about the field? Uh, they don't have a field up. Oh no, no. The worst that they do have Tim Tebow up though. Jeez, two hundred fifty to one. I'd need better odds than that. Yeah, you Come got, on, that's just burn your money. Right. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Sam Bradford seventy-five to one. Okay. I'm surprised Spiller isn't on here because you got a guy like Alfred Morris on here at 66 to one. Spiller is totally underappreciated in the NFL. Yeah. Hope that should change this year if Doug Marone does anything right. Steven Jackson, 66 to one. Another, uh, if you're looking to burn a dollar or two, you can put some money on Alex Smith of the Chiefs at 75 to one. Yeah. He's just not going to be the MVP this year. He's just not. I I would have had a hard time picturing him as the MVP of his own team. What do you think the highest defensive player comes in at? And who do you think it is? Who it is is, I guess, obvious. Now, I should know this, I suppose, but is there a league MVP? I know there's an offensive and defensive right, that, MVP. Right, those are different awards. But what was... The, offensive we... player of the year, defensive player of the year is different than MVP. Okay, so right. MVP is just... Oh, can a defensive player... They can, but it's rare. <laughs> Who's the last it's almost always it, a quarterback. I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, if there's one up there... Uh... It's J.J. Watt. Oh, okay. And he's at forty to one. In between, he's actually tied with his QB Matt Schaub at forty to one, and Tony Romo, and Michael Vick, and Matt Stafford. A bunch of guys are thirty-three to one. We mentioned I, a few. I think a defensive end is a super important position. It's uh, we've talked a million times about how it's a quarterback league. So getting to the quarterback is really important on the defensive side. But he's a, he's a guy that. Does one thing really well? Like, would a defensive end ever win the MVP? I mean, maybe it's happened. I'd have to look it up, but you probably have to win the sack. You got to break the sack record. You got to make the playoffs and have like a, a quarterback that's not like you'd have to beat Baltimore with uh, what the hell is the quarterback's name there? Holy cow! RG three is eighteen Dilfer. to one. Eighteen to one now coming off an ACL. That might be difficult. That yeah, might that's not a, be a great that's a little high. Yeah. Our buddy Chris Johnson, fifty to one. I actually don't hate Chris Johnson this year, fantasy wise, just because he's going. I mean, we'll get into you that. You want to put twenty five bucks on him to win the MVP at fifty to one? No, no. no. <laughs> How about uh, your buddy? You like Jamal Charles? I do. You're a big Jamal Charles. You get sixty six to one on your money there. I'd rather bet. I think if they're going to be good, it'll be more about him. I mean, it's a quarterback league, so Alex Smith has to do something. Right, but. and you get seventy five to one on Smith. Yeah, I yeah I like I like Jamal Charles. Right, I like Sam Bradford at seventy five to one. I mean, I wouldn't bet it, but if right. I was trying to find a long shot, people like him with Tavon Austin this yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, if they win their division, he'll be the MVP. Sure. Another yeah. example of you know beating out two big favorites. Right. All right, so interesting stuff there. Let us know if you make any bets. Who you got your money on at sports underscore casters or the sportscasters at gmail dot com. All right, I forgot I still have one here. You do? Yeah, uh, real quickly. Adrian Peterson likes to say things, and sometimes they're silly, but uh, he's really not a guy to bet against because I believe he said he would I be back want to challenge him. last year, and uh, he proved a lot of fantasy people wrong that waited for him till round three, four, whatever. Well, this year he said 
somewhat candidly, I don't think he did all the math on it necessarily, but in an interview he said that he is going to break Emmett Smith's rushing record by 2017. And basically what that means he has to do is not miss a game and average 120 yards per carry until week 16 of 2017. So That's a lot. Can he do it? Sure. Uh, if he averages 2,000 yards a season from that point, that actually puts him at 125 yards a game and ahead of that pace. So That's a lot. It, 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 it's a ton. It's a lot to ask any running back to stay healthy that long. Uh, we talk a lot about injury risks and running backs that are injury risks. and They're all injury risks. They're all injury risks. He's no more injury prone than anybody else. Uh, I mean, Darren McFadden might actually carry that injury risk uh, label properly. But Peterson's not any more of an injury risk than anybody else. But to play that many games for the next four years uh, is a lot to ask. So I wouldn't bet against him. I wonder what the odds would be on that. Is, is someone out there putting odds on him breaking that, averaging 120 yards a game until 2017 and not missing a game? I would probably rather put money on him winning the MVP this year. Sure. Than that. Plus, you'd have to really have your money tied up for a while in that future. <laughs> that's, that's right. You know, it's a long time to <laughs> let them hold your 100 bucks or whatever you might weigh on that. But yeah, he, he thinks he can break it by 2017. Uh, he also said on Twitter this week that he can't wait for HGH testing in the NFL. Really? Yeah, he can't wait. Like, he wants it. He's just hes so likable. He's the man. <laughs> Don't get me started. All right, we're going to take a break and come back with Jenny Vrentes from The Monday Morning Quarterback. All right, our next guest is a graduate of Penn State, currently lives in New York City, and one is one of the three staff writers hired by Peter King to work at the newly launched The Monday Morning Quarterback. She's making her first appearance on the podcast today, and we're very honored and lucky to ha- welcome Jenny Rentes to the program. How are you doing today, Jenny? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you? Great. Very excited. It's a great time of the year, right? Everyone's in camp now. We have an actual football game this weekend, I think, over at the Hall of Fame and uh, getting closer and closer to the start of another football season. I think I saw, I think it was Chris Burke, actually, you put on Twitter that last Sunday was the last Sunday of 2013 without a football game. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, now getting close, finally, right? So tell us about the Monday morning quarterback. Uh, We talked to Greg Bedard last week, just one day after the site had launched. Now we're a little over a week after the launch. And I guess the first thing I want to know is how is it that you came to be one of the one of the three writers? What was the initial contact with Peter and, and what made you decide that, that ultimately it was the right idea to move from where you were over to the Monday morning quarterback? Yeah, I think it's just a really, you know, exciting opportunity. It's not very often that you get to kind of be part of something from the very beginning, you know, and be part of a st- the start of something. So I was really excited to join for that reason. Um, you know, Peter lived in Montclair, New Jersey for a long time. So he was a loyal Star Ledger reader. Um, and that's where I first started covering the NFL, the uh, Jets and the Giants for the Star Ledger. Um, so I've known Peter sort of through NFL circles for, for several years. And the first heard about the opportunity this year around the time of the Super Bowl, a little bit after it, and 
you know, when I first heard about the site and what they were trying to do, kind of cover the NFL in a, a little bit different way and try new kinds of stories, um, it sounded really cool. It sounded like it was going to be something special. And the more I heard about it, the more I realized, you know, I really wanted to be a part of it, even though it's something new and you always wonder, you know, you don't know exactly what it's going to be like. It's maybe a little bit of a gamble, but I just felt like there was no way I could not take this opportunity. You know, we were just talking to Elizabeth Merrill a few minutes ago, and she was talking about how six years ago when she moved from uh, the newspaper in Kansas City over to ESPN.com, a lot of people, you know, were telling her she was crazy. Now, six years ago, it doesn't seem like as crazy as a move. And for someone who just did it, moving from a newspaper to a magazine, but really to a website, which is going to be your focus, even though, you know, people think of Sports Illustrated, think of a magazine, you're obviously moving to a website venture. Is that when when you made that move, did you feel like oh this is this is much better in terms of security and the way that information is being changed? Do you, do you feel a little bit more comfortable now working for a website as opposed to maybe how you felt at the newspaper? Well, it's hard to ever feel truly secure in the journalism industry right now, but I did think it was a a good move in terms of you know it's a website, but it's also a website backed by a magazine. So I felt like there were you know, sort of two components of, of the job that, that I liked. Obviously, being in a newspaper business for a while, I was at the Star-Ledger for about six years, and, you know, you see a lot of um, the sad parts of the business and, you know, rounds of layoffs or buyouts or, or furloughs or things like that. And obviously, like I said before, nothing's really guaranteed in, in any realm of journalism right now, but I did think it would be a neat venture to be part of a website. I think, you know, a lot of people are getting their information on smartphones and tablets and devices like that. And I think our website is really friendly towards those. You know, the the size of the page changes based on the size of the device that you're looking at. And I think we really had that kind of consumption of the site in mind when we talked about the concept of it. So I think that's been pretty neat to feel like you're part of something that sort of the future of, of journalism has been pretty cool. So eight days in here, what has the feedback been like that you've heard, and how do you feel about how things are going so far? Yeah, we've heard a lot of really nice feedback. It's been um, pretty overwhelming and, 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 you know, really nice to hear from a lot of people that they enjoy the site, that all the hard work, you know, that we've put in over the past few months is is paying off. Um, A lot of people say they think the site, you know, is different. That's kind of, you know, one of the things that means the most when they say, well, there's nothing really else out there like it. And that was certainly Peter's idea for the site. So that's been really nice to hear. Um, I think, you know, we just hope we can sustain the pace because, you know, we spent two months sort of gearing up for the launch and preparing a lot of material. And now, you know, now we're on the road and we're in training camps and days are long. And, you know, you're trying to make sure that the quality and the quantity stays at a a high level. You know, one thing that, Mr. Bedard and and I talked about last week was this kind of idea. Even though he wasn't exactly a beat writer, he was you know f- he he was able to focus on the league if he wanted to. But he did seem to 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 write mostly about the Patriots and you working and and working mostly on the Jets and the Giants. Now that you have the whole league opened up to you, do do you feel like you're excited about being able to cover more teams, or does part of you say? Well, you know, maybe this year it would have been fun to follow the Jets quarterback race real close or Rex Ryan, you know, or the Victor Cruz contract. Or how do you feel about 
focusing on the league as opposed to maybe a smaller group of teams like you did at the newspaper? Well, I think it's you know going to be a little bit of an adjustment period from going from such a narrow focus to a wider one, but that was definitely a step that I was really you know excited to take because I, I think when you look at the league as a whole, you sort of have better context for a lot of the stories that you write. So even if you might be writing a story that is about one team in particular, you can sort of have a better idea of what it means in the big picture of the NFL. And, you know, it's like, especially going from training camp to training camp, when you're with one team in training camp, it's easy to sort of, everyone in training camp is excited and they think the team's going to be great this year. And it's so it's easy if you're only seeing one team to sort of buy into that. Whereas if you're going team to team, you can kind of see the differences and see which teams are farther along, which quarterbacks are playing well, which offenses are coming together, which which ones aren't. So um, I, I like kind of taking a step back a little bit. You know, we know that Peter's signature column is always going to be his Monday morning quarterback column. And Mr. Bedard talked to us last week about hoping to revive his Friday notes column that he used to do at the Globe. What's gonna? Is there anything that you're hoping that will become your signature column? Something that will be able to go on the site at a certain time or a certain day and know it's going to be there and know it's going to be in a certain format? Or are you going to focus more on the variety and just doing different features all the time? Well, I think we're going to do a lot of the variety. You know, I think as we sort of build a, a base around the league, but I, you know, I do want to delve into some of the health and safety and sports science issues a little bit more, and I think that's going to come a little bit more over time, and, and hopefully that can be something that's a, a regular installment as well. Just this early on, I'm not exactly sure what shape or form that will take, but that's definitely something we'd like to do down the line. Yeah, well, the NFL Network actually has hired someone who specifically is on that beat, right? And uh, there was a great documentary, yeah. I don't know if you've seen it, called Head Games that came out last year, uh, which focused on that, which I thought was really great. Uh, what is it about that particular issue that, that interests you more specifically? Well, I just I think, you know, concussions and head injuries and player safety is, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest storyline right now in the NFL. So we want to make sure we cover it, you know, we devote enough coverage that it deserves and also that we cover it smartly. Um, I think, you know, it's just sort of taking the time to build a knowledge base and learn where the stories are and, and delve further into those issues. But you know, hopefully we'll do more of that as time goes on. You know, usually at this point in camp, the biggest story is about who's not there, you know, who's holding out. And there's some of that this year, but it seems like the first week, the biggest issue is the huge injuries that have already been a part of this. And I guess the last question kind of plays into that about how many big injuries there's been already with Jeremy Macklin and, and Pitta and some other injuries that have crept up here. Is this yeah, something that... yeah? Been- Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, just it's been kind of a, a crazy start to camp with so many season-ending injuries or season-threatening injuries already happening in the first few weeks. I and mean, I think it's hard to – I think it's probably more coincidence than anything else. I mean, a lot of times these have happened before padded practices have even started. And, you know, obviously the new CBA wanted to scale back on contact and reduce sort of the workload in training camp, you know, to help – protect player safety, um, but these kinds of injuries are, you know, are, are the ones that you can't really ever prevent no matter no matter what you do, you know, ACLs and collision type injuries and, and things like that are always going to be a part of the game, but yeah, they've certainly been coming at a high rate the first few days of camp, and that's, you know, always so sad to see. You know, I think it was yesterday you posted a story about Brian Cushing and kind of his recovery from an ACL injury, and it seems like every time 
every story I've read about someone who's coming back from an injury, the f- in the first sentence or second sentence, it's either a quote from the player or a point that the writer makes. It's right away a comparison to what Adrian Peterson was able to do and how this player is now looking at what Adrian did last year as almost like motivation to, if Adrian can do it, I can do it. Do you think that a lot of players are going to find out that Adrian Peterson is a freak and that's a lot harder to do than we think? Or is it that this surgery and medicine has evolved to a point where those goals are more obtainable now with an ACL injury? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think certainly more is known about the best way to go about ACL rehab and repair and, you know, the route that you can take to be, you know, returning to the same player that you were. But I do think, you know, he has set sort of an unrealistic standard. I mean, obviously it was realistic for him. He achieved it and, and that's wonderful. But like you said, he's definitely a freak and you see so many other similar instances of guys who, you know, have gone to the same doctor, you know, have the same surgeon and it doesn't work out the same way as, you know, for them. So, you know, I, I do think it's setting a bar that for a lot of guys will turn out to be unrealistic. You know, as you get ready to visit camps and, and follow different teams and different stories, what kind of things are really interesting you? What things do you want to see play out here as we get closer to the regular season? Are there certain things that you want to see how they progress? Are there certain things that interest you, certain things that are kind of in a notebook somewhere that you want to follow up on? Well, I think I'm always interested with new coaches, you know, when they bring their their schemes and their ideas to the NFL. I'm always interested to see how well those translate. Obviously, we, we know about Chip Kelly, but we, you know, we were up here in Buffalo today. I'm, I'm really curious to see what the Bills' offense is going to look like. You know, So uh, I think a lot of those things, when, when coaches come in and they bring different systems and they, they, they try to remake a team you know, in their image, or you know, Gus Bradley's defense in Jacksonville, those are the things probably that, that, uh, that piqued my interest the most. Isn't Western New York just the most beautiful place in the world? It is pretty beautiful. You know, it was just a perfect day here. Like, it was warm, but it wasn't oppressive. It wasn't hot, you know. It's just a gorgeous day out here. We really enjoyed Bill's camp. I think E.J. Manuel is going to be pretty good. 75 degrees and sunny. I mean, that's pretty much what it's like every day in Western New York. I try to tell people who don't live here, it's always this beautiful. (laughs) No, that's exactly what it was. It was a perfect day. Tell me a little bit about the Bills and what you've seen out there in Bills camp. Because obviously, being in Buffalo, a lot of people are interested in, as you said, E.J. Manuel and Doug Marone's first camp. And, and what did you see down in, in Rochester there? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that jumped out today was, you know, I don't, I, E.J. Manuel, I thought, performed better than Cobb today. Obviously, it's one practice, you know, it's a limited sample size. But I just think you see that upside to him. You see why they want him to to be the guy, um, and, you know, guys like Cobb, you think, have a ceiling, and, you know, you sort of know what you're going to get, and I think there's an excitement around uh, Manuel, and uh, he threw some beautiful passes today, and, you know, I don't know exactly when he'll be the guy, but I think he will at some point this season. You know, the Bills have had such a tough time post-Jim Kelly, finding anyone really to line up back there and lead the team effectively. Obviously, at I want to say they've only made the playoffs once or twice since in the post-Jim Kelly era. One time it was it was Doug Flutie and um, Rob Johnson kind of combining it. And that might be the only time actually they've made the playoffs since Jim Kelly's left the team. And there's been some optimism before. There was some optimism around Rob Johnson. There was obviously a lot of optimism around J.P. Lossman, another first-round pick that didn't work out. 
Is there some you, you said you can see the upside so early here? Do you think the Bills would be making a mistake if they didn't run Manuel out on opening day, or, or are you of the other camp that thinks maybe he should watch a little bit and and kind of progress? Or is that something we need to see more practice of being so early in camp? Well, definitely need to see more practices. And you know, when, when I say I see the upside, I don't know if that you know how that translates to wins this season. Certainly wins as a rookie, you know, is a hard thing. I mean, you look at quarterbacks and, and how they develop, you know, you see stories like Eli Manning where they, you know, they didn't start right away, but they got a chance at some point their rookie year, and then their trajectory worked so well, you know, worked out so well for them. But I think now the expectation is these guys have got to come in and they've got to start right away. And, um, you know, I, I – I, I would be in that camp, you know. If you think this is a guy who ultimately is going to give you the best chance to win, then you might as well throw him in there um, and let him get the experience. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, ways to develop a quarterback. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to mess it up, but I don't necessarily think throwing them in right away is one of them. I think, you know, as long as you take a smart approach with, you know, your expectations are basically saying, look, even if you mess up, you're our guy and we're giving you experience, which is exactly what the Giants did with Eli, even though his chance came later in the season. Even when he messed up, they said, it doesn't matter, you're our guy. I think that's the most important thing to helping a quarterback develop. But, um, but you know, looking at the, the Bills, I mean, it's just so hard in the AFC East. I mean, people say maybe the Patriots are vulnerable this year. I don't really ever buy that. And I think, you know, you look at all the other AFC East teams – I mean, most years you're really competing for a wild card bid because the Patriots have so well sewn up that division for so many years. So it's hard to look at anyone else as a legitimate, you know, saying, okay, this is going to be a successful team. You know, you think, okay, the Patriots are probably going to win the division, and then if another team from the, you know, AFC East is going to make the playoffs, it's going to be as a wild card. Well, you know, I think it's been so bad for so long, and I think a lot of Bills fans would be happy just to have a, a reason to be in the stadium in December. You know what I mean? I I think that might sound like a really poor expectation, but I think fans here, if they can be playing meaningful games, even if they're only meaningful because it would mean a wild card bid, I think that would do a lot for this fan base and for this city and and for the franchise, really. Yeah, and I think, you know, my guess is the Bills are still a while from making the playoffs, but um, I do think when you have a, a rookie quarterback that comes in, there is some excitement that comes with that. You know, you look at Tannehill in Miami, okay, they didn't make the playoffs last year, um, but you could see that, okay, this is the guy for the future, and they're going to build something around him here, and, and that's something to watch and something to latch on to. So, you know, if they start manual, even if he has ups and downs, you know, it, like you said, it's, it's still something to say, okay, this is the guy we're going to build around. There's some excitement in that. Last thing, and then we'll let you go. I know you're busy. Uh, one last Bills thing, and that's that Jarris Bird obviously is not there. And this is something that comes up seemingly almost every year with this team. Uh, the willingness or unwillingness to pay certain players, players that they developed. Actually, I think Bird is the only player that they drafted who made the Pro Bowl at his position in something like 10 or 12 years. You know, Peters made it as a tackle but they drafted him as a tight end so there's other guys that they drafted who made the pro bowl but what's the vibe are you picking up any vibe from the players or from the fans or who from hovers there about the bird situation and him not being there or is that kind of like in the background right now and more focusing on who's there well i, I you know i, I honestly i didn't 
get much of a read on that. I mean, I think the biggest question right now is, you know, the quarterback situation as with any team. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. That's an interesting situation. I, I just don't happen to have a lot of insight on it. Is there a lot of worry about Mario Williams' injury there, or is that an, is that kind of just a day-to-day thing or another thing you didn't hear about? I know well, you're no, not a beat writer. I'm sorry. <laughs> just... No, no, that's okay. I, you know, it's just, the, the Mario Williams thing seems to be a little bit of, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of answers right now. I, I understand that there was a little bit of an interesting exchange with Marone and a reporter who was, you know, trying to get some more answers today about about the Williams situation. Exactly, you know, what's wrong with the foot? You know, is it a similar situation to the wrist where he's seeing other doctors? And who are the doctors that he's seeing? Um, it doesn't seem to be a lot of clarity. I mean, I know he passed his physical, obviously, to start camp, so... The execution is not something that's super serious, but I think they're not letting a lot of details out right now. Well, it's Jenny Vrentes, who you can find on Twitter at Jenny, V-R-E-N-T-A-S. It's the MondayMorningQuarterback.com, MMQB.com, or you can just type in MMQB.SI.com. Either way, we'll get you there. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. Only eight days into the site. I know you're traveling around to camps, and it's busy, so we really appreciate you taking out the time. We're loving it so far. Really a great site, a great project. We look forward to seeing more. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I appreciate the kind words, and thanks for having me on. Okay, we'll hope to do it soon again. Sounds good. Thank you. All right, thanks to Jenny Vrentes for being on the podcast today. We really appreciate that. A uh, quick book club update. Our book club book of the month is Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution from the Sopranos and the Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. The author is Brett Martin. Uh, he writes for GQ Magazine. And I think I'm going to reach out and try to set this interview up with Brett for next week so we can get a little bit more culture in before we really get into football season and college football season and all the other things that come with the fall. So another week to read Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution from The Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad, which reminds me that we're only a couple weeks away from the end of the Breaking Bad run. I think there's oh, hand- they're ending it this yeah, year? a handful of episodes left of that, and I believe that starts two Sundays from now. Okay. And I've been watching the newsroom the last couple Sundays, which I always kind of am like – all right, this isn't that good of a show, but it's okay. I might as well watch it. I really, really liked it last week. It was probably the best episode I've ever seen. That's the new the new Sorkin show on HBO. Okay. You know how he can be real wordy and sure. kind of rambly. And, uh, but, yeah, Difficult Men, check this out, and we'll see if we can get Brett on the show next week to chat with us about it. It's going to be kind of up to him because he did say he was – a little bit busy. He's kind of squeezing us in, so we appreciate that. A couple things to check out this week reading-wise. Two things. The SI this week. On the cover is A-Rod. And SL Price, who we love, is has the story on A-Rod. It'll be interesting to see what he has to say about everyone's favorite baseball player, Alex Rodriguez. Right. I, I reached out to Mr. Price to see if he could join us next week. But he's going to be on vacation He's going to be on in about a month. He's got a few weeks off, and then he's going to be doing some stuff for the book, which is on football and Al Quippa PA, and then he's going to join us probably in the beginning of September or so. 
So unfortunately, he couldn't do it next week, but he will be on soon. And then the other thing in that magazine that looks pretty interesting, and it's actually the same topic in two different places, is Andy Staples from SI, one of the few SI people that we haven't had on, although I have reached out to him to see if he can join us to talk about his piece on Johnny Football, Johnny Manziel, who spent the summer getting in basically all kinds of trouble <laughs> and ruining his, his reputation. And also, uh, Wright Thompson, uh, ESPN.com has a piece on Manziel as well. And actually, why don't we see what we can find out about what's going on at ESPN.com as we welcome for the first time out of the show, Elizabeth Merrill. Our next guest is from Nebraska and is a graduate of Nebraska-Omaha. She was a writer for the Kansas City Star, where she covered the Kansas City Chiefs, and also wrote for the Omaha World Herald. Today, she is a senior writer at ESPN.com, and we're very honored to have her for the first time on the podcast. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Elizabeth Merrill. How are you doing today, Elizabeth? Hey, Steve. Good. Thanks for having me on. Very excited to have you on. How'd you like that uh, Nebraska-Omaha fight song there? <laughs> was that the fight song? That was the Mavericks. <laughs> the Mavericks fight song. Go Mavericks, go! I think it's called. Well, it's kind of sad because they dropped football a couple of years ago, and so that just makes me even more depressed. Great. Oh, they, yeah, they had a really strong Division Two football team, and it's no more. And so, yeah, that's probably why I just feel a little melancholy listening to it. They do have an emerging D one hockey program. Actually, my brother went on an official visit there. Him and uh, one of his teammates when he was in the USHL went on a visit there, and they're building a really nice uh, rink right now on campus, and um, yeah. and uh, my brother's friend did go there, actually, and plays there now, and they played an outdoor game last year in Omaha. They did. Yeah, so definitely some exciting things going there for the hockey program. There is, yeah, and that's kind of the big-time program there, which seems weird, but hockey does have quite a pretty big following in Omaha, and then obviously football is so huge in the state, which was why it was such a shocker that the, you know that one of the local teams dropped football, but Nebraska football is obviously king here. So, And is that what you yeah. grew up maybe the biggest fan of, or what kind of like, what sports were you interested in initially? So obviously, like you said, there's no necessarily pro teams in there, but College football is such a big thing, of course, with the Cornhuskers and the you know Nebraska Cornhuskers. Was that your thing growing up, or was there something else, or what kind of got you into sports initially? Sure. I mean, I don't think you can grow up in Nebraska without being exposed to it. I mean, you go to you go to Walmart or whatever, and it's blasting over the speakers on Saturdays. The place, the whole state, practically shuts down for football, no matter who they're playing. So yeah, you. I remember I have very early memories, you know, the 83 Gopher 2 National Championship game that Nebraska lost. I remember my sister right. balling <laughs> as a little kid. But uh, So when I actually uh, grew up, and I, I don't know that that was the reason I went into sports, but uh, my dad always kind of had us position. You know, we played sports as kids. We were one of the first you know, families to have cable in a smaller town in Nebraska. And so I remember watching Atlanta Braves baseball like every day. I had those 
those rosters from the 80s memorized. So we were around it a lot. And, you know, first job out of college, uh, I was like a copy messenger, getting people coffee. And there was an opening in sports. So I went over there, and the rest is sort of history. Uh, taking those prep calls, I'm sure anybody who's a sports writer remembers that the Friday night prep calls, and that was kind of how it all started. And eventually covered the Huskers, and I think once you cover a team that you followed as a kid, I don't know, you lose a lot of that. Uh, whatever, if there is any sort of fandom that you had, you really lose it when you, when you cover a team just because, uh, well, you can't have it there, but especially, you know, covering Nebraska was never easy just because it's really hard to get access. I guess that's kind of, that's probably one of the reasons I, you know, with the NFL, I know when I switched from covering Nebraska football, I covered them during, now I say this, that access was poor. I should qualify this by saying Nebraska in the 90s um, had, you know, obviously, as you know, these really all-powerful teams that used to kill other, their opponents 50 to nothing. Right. Pretty commonplace. Well, so I got in right when they declined. Um my first season was the season that the, you know, they went seven and seven that I covered them. So things were a lot different. They started, you know, they had assistant coaches who were there for three decades. It was just, uh, the continuity there was amazing. And, you know, then they started, you know, firing assistants. And I think that helped me become a better reporter. Um, you know, waiting outside, you know, tracking tail numbers off of private jets. You know, because it's such a big deal there. Even if they hire an assistant, it's a huge deal. You can get a scoop. It's funny how things have changed. It's, that was like the early 2000s, and any more people will say, you know, there's no scoops anymore. But back then, you know, the worst feeling was getting up at 9:30 in the morning. Okay, because you know you're younger, you get up or you get up later, obviously. But oh, getting yeah, up yeah. and getting a call from your sports editor saying, "Hey, you got to track this down because the, the rival newspaper beat you on this." Now anymore, you know within 45 seconds we got beat on something. But, yeah, everything's a big deal there. It was a great place to start and sort of learn about reporting and what's important. And, but, yeah, those were some pretty interesting years from Solich getting fired for the not, after the 9-3 and three season. You know, I remember they won at Colorado. I was – I'm probably rambling here. No, but yeah, I was I like it. <laughs> I was a bridesmaid in one of my best friend's weddings, and so I covered the Nebraska-Colorado game and uh, missed the prenup because the Nebraska-Colorado game used to be on Friday after Thanksgiving. Right, yeah. And, you know, they won. They won in Boulder, which wasn't easy to do back then. And, and so we left that game thinking, you know, he's all right. He's good, I had yeah. a couple of great sources that said, you know, go to your wedding, everything's fine. And the next day I'm like probably a couple of drinks in and I get a call, <laughs> it's not fine, and that he's getting fired. It was just a really awkward thing having my sports editor pick me up and I'm, you know, in this dress. And <laughs> I ripped my dress walking up the steps uh, to the old newsroom to try to track it down. But Yeah, so those were kind of some tumultuous years, but it really helped me sort of develop my reporting chops. And Now, did you have an understanding bride? Yeah. Did you have an understanding bride? Like, was it someone who could understand sports and what that meant? Or was she like, how dare you leave my wedding for this? 
Yeah, not really. Not for a while. Uh, but after that, yeah. I, I think after a little while, everything was okay. Okay. But needless to say, yeah, that next day, we didn't go through the gifts or anything. I wasn't <laughs> there for that because... You know, when Nebraska fires a coach, I mean, just with the continuity that's been there, you had, you basically had, you went from Devaney to Osborne to Solich. And, you know, obviously they went with Callahan after that and now Pelini, but just things did not change. I mean, coaches were there for a very long time. And so that was a humongous deal. And, and so now, yeah, with Pelini, it seems like they're sort of back to having that continuity. I mean, not the success they had. Uh, but sure, it was, uh, it was a pretty, those were fun times. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about this, I think earlier today, there was a big, there's been a big discussion, obviously, about atmosphere at NFL stadiums and kind of this fear that the league has that in a few years, stadiums are going to be half empty and everyone's going to be at home with their iPads and Twitter and watching on their giant movie screen TVs and and not paying attention to the, the, to the stadiums. And you're someone who's had the chance, obviously, to grow up around an incredible college football atmosphere and Nebraska, then cover them, and then cover a team who's maybe known for one of the best atmospheres in the NFL in the Chiefs. What are kind of your thoughts about atmospheres in NFL stadiums and maybe that unique situation that you were in with the Chiefs and how maybe the rest of the league can work on kind of building that up? Because that's obviously a big issue for the NFL, which maybe doesn't have that many uh, issues in terms of... It's kind of that, and then like the off-field stuff with the players and concussions. Those are almost like the big three things for the NFL right now. I think it's a genuine concern because with HDTV, it's it's it, the picture is, is so uh, clear and brilliant. You know, you can you can see the blades of grass on the ground. That it's it is. It's harder to pull people off of their couches in front of their flat screens to go to games. Now, in Kansas City, yeah, it's a great atmosphere. And I covered the team uh, 05 and 06, which it was Vermeule's last year. I think they went 10 and 6 and still didn't make the playoffs. And then it was Herm's first year uh, where they went 9 and 7 and just had, needed a million things to happen on the last day uh, of the season. And they all freakishly happened. Um, and so there was a lot of interest back then. And so, of course, I-, I could never get that, though. And I'm a wimp. I'll admit that. But, you know, there were some obviously really cold nights in Kansas City. I remember a, a Broncos game that I-, I could not, just walking in my car, which was probably just a couple of blocks, I could not understand how somebody would bundle up and sit through that. Um, but they do. And I, don't th- I think it's a concern uh, I think ticket price, you know, people complain about the parking and the tickets and everything and the whole experience and spending so much money on uh, adult beverages and food. But by the same token, you get eight games a year. You know, you get eight home games. Um, and so I think at least in a lot of cities, you're, you're still going to have that. You're still going to have those people who are going to seek that experience. Uh, going back to Nebraska, I mean, they've sold out for years and years and years. I think they've got the longest sellout streak in NCAA history, and and I don't think they're going to lose that. I try to go like once a year to a game, um, but but it's it, it is interesting. Like, w- what will they do to sort of keep those people in? The NFL is exploded in popularity 
by far the number one sport in the United States. But yet they're dealing with that. And I think they just need to do more and more things to enhance the fan experience. You know, people the people are always going to go to games just because of the experience, just just to be there. But it gets harder and harder, I think, to, to have those sellouts and to have, you know, to, to keep those people on the stands. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is in some cities. Uh, but, yeah, in Kansas City, unless you're dealing with a team that's, you know, 2-14 and 14 like last year, I don't think it's that much of an issue. They have, you know, you, you don't raise ticket prices. That's probably one thing. Right. Um, you keep them flat. But there's some cities like Green Bay, you know, that they'll never have that problem. You wrote about Ray Lewis around Super Bowl time, and then when we first made our connection about a month or so ago, we you were working on some stuff on Aaron Hernandez, which eventually you wrote about for ESPN.com. And I, I was thinking about that. You know, I was like, oh, it's kind of interesting. She she had written something about Ray Lewis, and then a couple months later, she's in this situation covering Hernandez. And I guess before we get too into that, I guess what I was just most curious about was what was it like – kind of to go in there and cover that story. Was it unique as compared to other things you did? You did? I mean, was it, was it, how, how was it different? How was it the same? What was it like kind of, as opposed to the story itself, what was it like kind of just being in it and covering Well, it was a huge feeding frenzy, uh, you know, a circus, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, when I got hired at ESPN, I can't believe it's been six years ago, but my job, and it's changed, but it was like, a, they called it a SWAT reporter. So you're supposed to go where some big news is breaking and just sort of parachute in and uh, write the best story that you can in the span of a few days, like a quick turnaround story. And so I always kind of like doing that, but the problem with it is that a lot of times you're dealing with a lot of human tragedy. You know, you're dealing with somebody dying unexpectedly, you're dealing with, you know, a homicide. So a lot of times it's around people that don't necessarily want to talk to you, and that's challenging, but the real challenge is trying to... And, and it's gotten way worse over the last couple of years since, like, TMZ is, is interested in sports stories now, and, you know, you've got way more media out there seeking the same stuff. But, you know, that's when you're really blessed to have good editors that you can bounce stuff off of. And, you know, they, they come up with so many ideas for me. Um, I know, like, Wright Thompson, who we were just talking about before we came on here, yeah. who's got the big Johnny Manziel piece that just is, uh, has launched. He finds something that interests him, and he writes about it, and he does just such an eloquent and amazing job. Um, my job's more like, a lot of times it's not my ideas, it's somebody else's, and that's totally fine with me, because I figure... You know, if an editor, if one of the editors that I have has a, an idea, it's probably going to be a good one. It's going to be a topical one. So anyway, with the whole Hernandez thing, it was, um, I came into it like a few days after everything had started. It was probably about four or five days into it. And I was sort of nervous about just being so behind the curve with everything. But as it turned out, news was still breaking. It was like one of those stories where, I mean, news is still breaking. Right, yeah. But like a week in is when things really started getting even more intense, you know, when he got arrested. And um, and so it, it was interesting, though, because 
you always try to find the, you know, you, you try not to like completely, you know, follow pack journalism, you try to do things a little different. And that's the challenge to, to, to figure out something unique before somebody else writes about it. And sometimes it doesn't work out, right? So, you know, there's a lot of smart people in this business and a lot of really good writers. And, um, so I, I do remember the day, the morning they arrested Hernandez, I was thinking, I was staying like near Foxborough and I'm thinking, you know, I'm not going to go down to the, to the police station. I'm going to go to Dorchester and go to Lloyd's house, you know, and get some reaction there. Thinking, oh, maybe that's a unique idea. I get there. It's about a 40 minute drive. There's seriously like 12 cameras, <laughs> trucks out there waiting. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you take that into account, there's probably 50 reporters at least waiting at the cop shop and at the courthouse. So uh, the Boston media, the Boston Globe has been amazing on this story. I mean, they've done a great job, uh, just like they did with the Boston bomber story. But so, yeah, so, okay. But the, one of the most, I, you hate to be one of those, you know, you're, you've got a job to do, but, you know, there's some times where you think, okay, this is sort of a slimy aspect of the job. And the thing that made me think that was so, you know, here's Odin Lloyd's family, and I sort of stayed back a little bit. Uh, but here's Odin, Odin Lloyd's family. And, you know, a week ago, they, you know, they found out that their son, their brother, their family member had, you know, had been murdered. And here's all these, you know, cameras just camped outside their house. And so they must have gotten word that, you know, that, that, that Hernandez had been arrested. So they were going down to the hearing. Um, and so anytime somebody walked out of the house, all these cameras swarmed on the people, on the family. And at one point, this little boy, like, just went up to the camera guys and said, please leave my cousin alone. And it's like, it, it was just so sad. And, and it just makes you think, okay, I just think you always have to sort of, you know, ask yourself the question, you know, uh, we've, we've had this. A really good editor told me once, and I've always sort of taken this with everything I do, it's like, you, in journalism, you comfort the afflicted and you afflict the comfortable. And, you know, I, I had asked Odin's family that week, hey, can, you know, would you talk to me about, you know, your son? Because it seemed like all the coverage was about Aaron and, and you know, what he allegedly did. And, uh, you know, they politely said, hey, we just want to mourn. So you just have to sort of consider all that, and it is. It's not the easiest thing, but, um, boy, there's just been so, – I'm fascinated by the story. Uh, it just keeps And evolving. all the twists and turns that it's taken, and just it's, – it's, it's inconceivable, you know, what has been out there, that someone who is a high-level NFL player, you know, it's so hard to maintain that. And if, you know – any of the stuff that's been out there has, has actually happened. I mean, he's really been living a double life, and and how, how do you? It's just it's it's just really uh, dumbfounding that somebody could carry on both of these lives for what seems like a long period of time. You know, you mentioned the the coverage of Hernandez and how it kind of how the Boston Globe had done such a good job as they had done with the bombing. And one thing I noticed with both of those stories was kind of how Twitter has evolved a little bit and how it seems like there's even more of a rush than before to get information out there. You know, I know with the bombing, yeah. maybe CNN had 
initially said there was going to be some arrests made prematurely. And there was a lot of information with this story about how Hernandez might be charged with something like obstruction with justice. And that information was maybe rushed out. And it wasn't necessarily the Boston Globe who did it. I, I don't mean that. Uh, but with Twitter now, and, and you who's someone not necessarily there to break news, you're sort of there more, it seems like, if I'm understanding this right, to find a deeper story and write a more long-form piece about that. How does Twitter kind of fit into that, if at all? Because you don't seem to utilize it that terribly much. Yeah, I'm not on Twitter a ton. Uh, just because, like, I, I don't want to tweet what I'm working on because I think we talked about this earlier. Um, you know, a lot of what I work on is, is, you know, you sort of aim for these big things and sometimes it materializes and sometimes it doesn't. And so I, I'm not on Twitter a lot. I think it is fascinating, though. It, it's interesting before, if I wanted to know what was going on or breaking news, I would turn on the TV. And I still do that, obviously, if I'm in front of a TV. But, I mean, I could be anywhere and go to Twitter, and it's like, it seems like I'm doing that a lot, where, I'll, you know, what is Adam Schefter posting, you know, or, or you know, what is being said, you know, about what just happened, or, you know, like some of the Hernandez stuff, that was out there yesterday. I mean, it's not being reported by a lot of outlets because it can't be confirmed. So that's one thing. It's it's almost like what message boards, but not that, not to that extent. I would like to think it's it's more evolved than that. But like ten years ago, you know, if you're a beat writer, you know, you you see something on a message board, your boss sees it, and they're like, hey, you know, what's the deal with this? And it just might be not be anything. With Twitter, I think it's a little more established and evolved than that. And, yeah, a lot more people are going there for news. A lot of people, uh, it, it, it does bring a different element to things. Um, that's just completely, I don't think anybody expected five years ago. I mean, you think about how our jobs have changed so much in the last five or six years. You know how we talked about with the scoops, it's like... Uh, when I left the Kansas City Star in, like, early 07, I mean, I had a lot of people tell me that I was making a mistake um, because it, I was at, like, an established newspaper, um, and I was going somewhere where it was, like, a, a contract situation for a website. Now, this was six years ago. Right. You know, you go to a website, you know, and think about how things exploded after that. Within, like, a year... You know, newspapers were laying people off, you know, by the hundreds. And the, that's what now the Internet is like where everybody goes for information. It's Everything's changed so quickly. And, you know, I don't know what we're going to be looking at in a couple of years, whether it's still going to be Twitter or something else. But it is, I mean, obviously I've made a fantastic choice. And I'm so, I'm so lucky to be surrounded by so much talent and, you know, so many smart people. But it is. It's it's stunning how quickly things change and, you know, where we get our news and our information. And it's so interesting that you make that point right now as, you know, every hour it seems like I learn about another reporter who's leaving a newspaper to go to ESPN.com for, you know, <laughs> yeah. to cover another NFL team. You know, Rob Domofsky from the um, Green Bay, Green Bay was it Post-Gazette, I think, is one who just yeah. moved over. You know, with ESPN going to beat writers for individual teams – 
we're going to hear, what, 25 new guys in the next couple of weeks who are doing exactly what you did six years ago. And I don't yeah, think anyone's saying it's a bad yeah. move. Yeah, I don't think anyone's saying it's a bad move anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Rob, too. Uh, Rob and I go way back, and, you know, he's one of the best. I'm excited about that. And, you know, the hires that they've made so far are, you know, great hires. And the one thing it's going to do is, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feed you know, the masses, what everybody wants, you know, it's, it's like, there's such a demand for this information and, and, you know, NFL teams are so popular. I, I'm going to be totally misquoting this because I read something that Rob King um, wrote or, or talked to Pointer yesterday about, I'm going to misquote his stat, but it was, it was stunning. It was something like uh, of the top 100 teams that readers are interested in, uh, 31 of the 32 are NFL teams, which right. is just yeah. Only the Jaguars incredible. weren't right. Only the Jaguars weren't in the yeah. top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing, you know. And so people are always looking for more on their teams. Uh, our divisional bloggers are really good, but they're spread so thin now. Trying to cover four teams, especially you know, it's it's funny. Sometimes you get a year. You know, who would have thought before last year that Sando would be so busy? you know, on his beat, and now he's got the Seahawks and the 49ers, you know, and um, so, yeah, it's like, it, I, I think it's it's a great idea, and the people they've hired so far, it's really exciting for us, and um, yeah, it's 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 a great move, and, and people now, it is, it's like a destination, and it's not like it wasn't six years ago, I mean, these were people I worked with who'd worked at a newspaper for a long time, but... You know, the newspaper business six years ago seemed like such a solid, you know, foundation. It was like, you know, what a lot of us had wanted to do our whole lives is like work for a newspaper. And so, you know, the fact that more people are going ESPN isn't that surprising. And it probably wasn't surprising six years ago, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting to work at a place where, you know, they... They want to devote resources into doing the best stuff. Um, and, and that's, I work on the enterprise unit with people like Wright and people like Wayne Gray's and um, people who write long form. And, you know, we're, with the investigative group, he's got like a bunch, you know, there's a bunch of really smart and talented people on that side. And it's just great. It's exciting to talk to people about ideas and, and, you know, vision and stuff. And yeah, it's been great. I, I, I've, you know, love the move, and it's just, it's a really great environment. Well, even though she doesn't use it much, you can find Elizabeth Merrill on Twitter at Merrill, M-E-R-R-I-L-L-L-I-Z, and you can find her work at ESPN.com. We really appreciate you taking some time to do this with us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Take care. All right. Talk to you soon. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy with the first pick Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Stephen Jackson, Miles Austin, we have Let Ocho Cinco, TJ Hushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care, I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. Alright, thanks to Elizabeth Merrill from ESPN.com for being on the show today, we really appreciate that. Five on Fantasy this week. Last week, we asked the listeners to tell us some interesting 
rules or quirks or things that they do differently in their fantasy football leagues to make them unique. And we got quite a few responses on Twitter, and I wanted to throw some out and see what Don thinks of them and uh, talk about this a little bit more. Okay. All right. At three, the number three down conversion says, and this is something that came up a few times, a head coaching position. Mm -hmm. Plus or minus seven points for a win loss by a team. He says it adds more strategy than you expect. And actually, he was backed up by at Sal Sports, who is a local sports radio guy who was actually kind enough to have me on the local right. sports radio show. He said they did the same thing, but at plus five points. And if you start a coach on a buy, it's automatically minus five. So if you're an idiot, you don't get zero. Well, I think part five. of it is... Right, I think what they're saying the there is strategy of, of just benching a coach. Right, you can't do that. Yeah, I've played in a league that I think gave like plus 10 for a winner, minus 5 for a loser. I don't know why it was like varied like that, but I didn't like that the coach you drafted could win you or lose you a week. If you got it, if you got it right and the other guy lost, that's a 15-point swing and I didn't like having to factor in the coach. Like when should you if you got a 15-point swing potentially, when should you have to draft draft a coach? Well, I asked, when do these guys go in the draft? And most people said last three rounds. Sure. So at that point, I'm, I have a league, and I have a kicker and a defense in the league. Uh, kickers almost kickers always here, yes. go last yeah. uh, or second last, whatever. Defense, sometimes people will reach for. So from my perspective, maybe I should like having defense in my league because – I'll let every other person reach for him, and I'll just wait and draft depth or whatever. Uh, that said, I wouldn't have those in my league except for the people in my league voted on it, and I decided to do what everybody like what the majority wanted. Yeah, if I was able to come to your rules meeting, which unfortunately was at the night of the rehearsal dinner, I would right. have seen if we could get that voted one more time on kickers, just to see kickers? if just to see if the attitude has changed after a year doing the league, just because it just seems so pointless. Yeah, I thought of it so little that i didn't even think to bring it back up because i don't like it either it just i'd much rather still draft the same number of rounds but rather than wasting one of those picks on a kicker you just have an extra bench spot but yeah i've done the head coach thing before and to me from for me it adds about as much as kickers i i hate to lose a week because a kicker goes off and has whatever four field goals to my kicker that has a couple extra points but it's too too. It's not random. I would just say it's it's inconsequential until it's consequential, and then it's really annoying. Sportscaster superfan Ford Kendrick at FC Kendrick on Twitter plays in an NFC only keeper dynasty league. That'd be awesome. That I, sounds really fun. Just any sort of. I don't know if I need the NFC only part of it. I know people do that. It's big in baseball. I know. Uh, but I, I really like the idea of being in a dynasty league, but it, that's a more serious league, and you need to have serious players in that type of league, uh, people that are willing to stick with it. And I don't have that, so I, I couldn't do that. But I, I love those ideas. I like the idea of auction drafts, even though I've never tried one. But, again, you need real serious players. Uh, Clay Parker at Clay Parker 23 on Twitter says, I think it's stupid when a decent running back is more valuable than Gronk or Eldon, or Watt, or Vaughn in fantasy football. He goes on to say uh, that he keeps his, his league keeps eight players every year, so 96 players are off the table. Teams keep two defensive players on average, and in his league, based on the scoring, two to four defensive players will go in the first round. Wow. So 
the basically tough, the idea there is guys are more equal. I don't hate that either, but again, you need real serious people that are willing to really learn the scoring because otherwise they're going to get left in the dust. You, you can't just download a cheat sheet because there's not cheat sheets out there for that. Richard Howenstein at our Howenstein says, if a player is suspended, not injured, you must keep them on your team. I kind of like that. Yeah. So you can't use a waiver claim on a guy who's suspended. I thought of a way to add a little extra money to a prize pool or something, and uh, I didn't know how to implement it properly or what to put the money toward, but I thought of doing something similar where if you have a player that gets sus- suspended and loses game time, you have to put like five bucks into a pool and then that money would go towards something. I don't know, uh, end of the year party or go toward food at the draft next year, something. I just couldn't think of a good way to implement it. Going back to the other guy that said things about defense drafting or getting drafted in the first round. Right. Now, the reason running backs go in the first round is because there aren't many of them. Not because they're the most important, but they become most important because there's a scarcity, especially because you start two and sometimes a flex means in a 12-team league, you're looking at 36 potential running back starters if everyone started three every week. And there's just not that many guys. That's why they're so valuable, even though quarterbacks probably score, I shouldn't even say probably, there's probably five, six quarterbacks that are going to score more than running backs drafted in the first round. My question about the defense would be, what player has that monstrous season Especially from like the linebacker position. It sounds like sacks are the premium here. Okay, Guys who sacks. sack the quarterback. That's what it seemed like based on who he said was going okay. early. Th- that, there'd be some separation there then. Yeah. Because with things like linebacker, that's the reason I don't like IDP so much. They you all a, get 100 tackles. Yeah, you have a middle linebacker yeah. on a bad team, and he's going to get just as many tackles as a middle linebacker on another team. And it, everyone basically has the same guy then. At Pack Fan Chris says, I like... $1 per transaction and leading point scorer, not best record at the end of the regular season, gets the money. That's great in theory. I love that. But collecting that money is just a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, if your league's good, I, I like that idea too. Uh, again, I run more of a casual league. Not rules-wise. Not We're not laid back. It's just the people that are there, are some some of them are new. It's kind of the, the reason I started is to get people that hadn't played into it a little bit. And... I like to encourage transactions and encourage people taking control of their teams and fixing bad teams and stuff. And I don't, I wouldn't want any rules that discourage someone new from doing it. But again, an inexperienced league, I like that rule too. All right, some more here. Let's I see. like that rule maybe even more in a keeper league where you've got these big dynasty leagues and you already have a lot of weight behind your trades and that just adds a little bit more weight to any free agency pickups you would have. I reached out to a couple of people that we follow on Twitter that I know play. Uh, Ryan Burns at FTBL Sickness, kind of a fantasy site there. Actually, you should find out. Uh, let's see. It's uh, footballsickness.com. He says he doesn't really do much different, but he does prefer full team IDP leagues, PPR and dynasty formats over standard. Okay. Yeah. And the one thing I would say, too, about this question is it wasn't necessarily all rules and like fantasy system-related questions. Some of it was, in my league, and I stole this from your league, it, I like the divisional draft. The top two teams from the year before get to draft their opponents uh, 
you get to draft your own divisions the next year. You get split up and you draft the divisions. I like stuff like that. Uh, the, the worst team in our league gets renamed by the rest of the league, so you get some embarrassing team name. I, those are the type of wrinkles I think maybe I was looking more for than... You know what's really cool about the division draft, too, is when you're the last pick. Yes, you were the last pick. Yeah. And I, I made sure to post it, and it was funny because the rule meeting for a rule meeting actually had a decent turnout. Like The year before, I think I had maybe two people there other than myself. Uh, this year, there was maybe about half the league there, and I, w- I was doing the division draft on the phone with a guy, and the first I had the first pick, and I uh, took Liz, this girl that's in our league, not that she, whatever, I took her, she's got the first overall pick, but... She stunk last year. She stunk. Right. <laughs> she wasn't statistically last, and she won the toilet bowl, which gives the first overall pick, but I, I picked Liz, so, I mean, that should be bulletin board material for her, I guess. And then the guy on the phone with me goes, who was that guy that picked all the bills last year? And I'm like, oh, that was Carl. And he goes, okay, I'll take him. And Carl was sitting right across from me when he said that. So He frowned. I, I like that, too. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, man. Yeah. But So that that's the type of stuff I like, little wrinkles that aren't necessarily rules or system-related, but uh, just add fun to the league. Two more quick ones. At Chris Burke underscore SI, our buddy Chris Burke, yeah. said that, he doesn't have a lot of rules. He does like uh, – he plays in two college football dynasty leagues, which I don't know much about college football fantasy, fantasy so I yeah. asked him to say more. And he says that they do limited conferences, full keepers, and no dropper ad during the season. Oh, okay. Yeah, because college I think would run into the same problem I was talking about as having replacement guys. A guy from – what's the school that always puts up a ton of points but never – Hawaii? Right. Their quarterback is going to be super valuable. Right, which is that. why they have to limit the conferences. Right, right. And then uh, Michael Fabiano, our buddy from the NFL Network, his thing was he loves PPR. He always tries to play in PPR when he can. Yeah, That's he not necessarily, that too. necessarily unique, but it is a different way to play. And then one last thing I wanted to say about this was Michael Berry was on Stern today. Matthew. Or Matthew Berry, of course. He's on Stern today. And uh, a couple things he shared, which are more along the lines of what you like, was that um, there's a league that he knows of where the loser, whoever finishes dead last, gets tattooed. Oh, that's brutal. But that's more of what I was thinking of. Nothing yes. on the face. Okay. And nothing racial or offensive. Okay, right. I guess the last, the last guy who lost ended up with a... The Bieber tattoo? Bieber tattoo. Okay, I did read about that. Yeah, that was... and then kind of a famous quirk for those who follow Simmons is uh, the winner gets to boot someone out of the league. Oh, the, okay. The winner kicks somebody out. Yeah, and they don't do it until, until the, draft. the draft. And I guess Cousin Sal, who's famous if you're into Kimmel and Simmons and right. those guys, he won, and he was planning on kicking out John Hamm, who is from, uh, from Mad, Mad Men. And I guess the day of the draft, John Hamm's at a shoot, and it's going late, and they're bugging him. Where are you? And he's rushing to get there. And he like leaves his <laughs> shoot to get there late, and then they kick him out of the league and turn him around. Wow, that's so that's brutal. vicious. That's vicious. I. So you won the league that we're in together that you run. Yeah. So let's say you had to do this. Who would you boot? Boy, if I was cutthroat, I'd probably kick you out. Because <laughs> <laughs> of the competition right. aspect and hope the replacement sucks or whatever. That's a rough rule. Yeah, it's really tough. I'd kick your dog on the way out. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Or maybe I wouldn't kick him because I like dogs. I'd kidnap him. Yeah. I'd take 
looking yeah, that, homeless. That, it's brutal that they make you come there with your cheat sheet in yeah. hand. That you've been All doing. your research. Oh, man. Thanks for coming. Maybe we should save the other thing for next week. Okay. We're kind of running late on this. Sure. All right. Thanks for uh, responding, those who did. Yeah, keep them coming, too, especially the interesting, like, uh, kicking people out type rules. Those are the ones I'm into, the, the wrinkles that don't, don't have anything to do with the game but the outside stuff. At sports underscore casters, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Let's learn more about a new iPad-only magazine called MVP Magazine. All right, our next guest is originally from Long Island, New York, and is a graduate of Arizona State University, where he shared a dorm room with Barry Bonds. No, that can't be true. Uh, He is the president of MVP Media and is the editor-in-chief of MVP Magazine, a new venture that is exclusive to the iPad, and we are very lucky to have him on the Sportscasters for the first time. A warm welcome to Ron Mateko. Did I get that right? That doesn't sound right. No, you got it. I know. It's, um, it's great to tell the marketers because only people that know me can pronounce <laughs> my last name, and it's a dead giveaway if, if somebody butchers it. But you got it right. All right, Mateko. I, won't, I got it. Uh, thanks for being on today. Really excited. That Bonds thing, that wasn't right, right? I made that up, didn't I? You didn't know. Well, you know, guys, do what you got to do in college earn a little extra money. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for being on today. You know, one thing that we like to do on the show is kind of talk about stuff that's kind of different or new out there. I know... One guy that we kind of made friends with a couple of years ago was uh, uh, Dan Wolken, who was the sports guy at the Daily, which was, I guess, a short-lived, or I, I don't even know if it's still out there. I know they got rid of sports, kind of a newspaper specifically for the iPad, and uh, Dan was the, the main sports columnist there, and he's moved on to USA Today now. But in kind of, first of all, being attached to my iPod, usually 20 of 24 hours a day, and I'm always searching around, I, I kind of stumbled upon your magazine which is exclusively a magazine about sports that's made exclusively for the iPad. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the origin of the magazine and kind of why MVP Media was interested in doing something that the content would be exclusive for the iPad? Well, my uh, background is in publishing and in print, and I've been in the industry for uh, almost 17 years now. So I've you know, earn my stripes a traditional way in the industry, but I always had my eye on digital, even going back to 2005 when I was dipping my toe into the waters with uh, publishing on the Internet. And uh, around 2007, I was looking to do a multimedia venture that would include um, both the web and, and print, and then that was about the time the economy started to, to uh, turn downward. And um, it was during that time that digital was starting to get a bit of momentum. So you fast forward a couple of years into 2010, and uh, we're past the worst of the economy, but, you know, we're still in a tough situation. But at that point, what happens is digital starting to gain a little bit of, of additional momentum with the web, and then you have the introduction of the iPad. And with, with the iPad came the capabilities of uh, many industries to evolve. And you, you look at what's happened with, um, with uh, video streaming, with television, uh, music continued its evolution, and um, magazine publishing in a big way, is going through an evolution right now. And being somebody that was already digitally minded, I recognized the opportunity for new players to come into the game with uh, iPad-based publications. And I likened it to what happened with the Internet. Once that started gaining some traction as a legitimate uh, source of information, you had all kinds of new players coming in 
And I usually cite people like Matt Drudge or um, Nick Denton over at Gawker Media, Arianna Huffington uh, with the Huffington Post and that empire. And the list goes on and on. And what happens is uh, when you have these technological advances, you have a lot of entrepreneurial minds that figure out ways to take advantage of the marketplace that didn't exist before. And in my opinion, that's what's going to happen with the magazine publishing industry because the point of entry has become so much more affordable. It doesn't take an eight-figure budget anymore to be able to produce a national publication and then to market it and deal with subscription fulfillment, etc. And then on top of it, you take the ability for the iPad to present uh, a magazine in a multimedia format so that you can create a much more engaging uh, format. So it's not just the written word, but now you can have audio clips and video clips. You can have animation. You can have uh, video slideshows, and you're not limited by the space of uh, the printed page anymore. Now, really, you're all lim limited by two things, your imagination and uh, the capabilities of the software. And I was on board with this early as far as seeing the direction that the publishing industry was going and, and wanted to be a part of it. So now you fast forward, what are we, uh, three years later, you have 150 million iPads sold, uh, tens of millions of additional tablets are, are out there in the market. It's gotten to the point where um, people are consuming information more through apps than uh, through web um, internet surfing. And that trend with mobile consumption of, of uh, media just continues to escalate in favor through media, or excuse me, mobile devices such as uh, smartphones and uh, um, tablets. So what's happening is the, the publishing industry is really in a quandary right now. Because much like newspapers a few years ago, the readers, the eyeballs, are going digital and the advertising dollars and newsstand sales and, and print circulation are going the other way. They're dropping. So now the so-called legacy publishers are trying to play that balance of keeping their old traditional business models intact while trying to capitalize off this upstart segment within their industry. But at the same time, that opens the door for people like myself to come in and just be the you know annoying little gnat on the elephant's leg, if you will, to grab our little piece of the pie and hopefully become something big like Nick Denton or, or uh, Ariana Huffington or, or these other players that have found their space on the web, only do it on the tablet. And um, you know that, that was really the impetus for what got us going. So now we have MVP Magazine, which we were lucky to be featured by Apple with our premiere issue, and issue number two is on sale. And we're launching a second publication called Turnbuckle. It's going to focus on professional wrestling in August and, and I hope to have a whole stable. But um, you know, that's, that's what... You know, it's basically a complete shift technology-wise in the industry, and, and, and uh, we're looking to be a part of it. Now, in terms of uh, creating the app and, and the programming aspect of it, was it a big undertaking to kind of get the app together, or was that kind of the easy part? It's easy as far as access to the pieces that you need to do it, but actually doing it is, is a bit difficult because it's some back-end building that you need to do through, in our case, Adobe software and then through the uh, development site and Apple, and um, it's not easy. <laughs> it took us months to be able to get it right to where we got everything functional, and then on top of that, you got to find somebody, especially a designer, that can utilize the Adobe software that we use, the, uh, it's called DPS, Digital Publishing Software, to be able to create the, the publication, and I was lucky enough to have a relationship with somebody that could take my vision and uh, make it a reality. So um, that, into, in addition to having a uh, mentor, he's the president of a uh, publishing company here in Phoenix, 
and his uh, outfit was taking their print publications digital as well. So we were able to swap notes, and I had the advantage of uh, having a sounding board and, and vice versa with him, and we were able to learn from our mistakes and, and get it going. Um, so I've definitely had some advantages that some other entrepreneurs might not have as far as trying to start up their own ventures. But, you know, luck is as important as good timing when it comes to starting a new venture. And, and I think that my years prior to starting this and the relationships that I developed and experience that I gained helped me be able to do this as opposed to maybe if somebody was coming in completely cold and, and trying to start, you know, from ground zero, so to speak. Now, with the first issue, you featured the NFL on the cover. With the second issue, you have Mike Trout on the cover. What about deciding on content for this? Right away, did you kind of zero in on wanting to be a general sports magazine, or was there some thought about maybe being an NFL only or a Major League Baseball only? What about the decision on content, which is something that even at our podcast, we're always struggling on, you know, what content should we focus on? Because there's so many ways you can go. When I first started the publication, it, it, uh, it premiered last October, and at that point, the iPad wasn't as, um, you know, broadly present as it is now. And at that time, I didn't think that a regional publication could work because there wouldn't be enough interest on any singular market at that point. So my my focus was on a national publication. Um, I've always had a, a deep affinity for quality storytelling, too. We weren't going to be about the X's and O's. You can get that in a thousand and one places. Um, and even now, there's only a handful of spots where you can get what you would call more long-form or more in-depth enterprise type of writing. Uh, and, and each of those places, I think, have their own little, you know, they have their pluses, but they have their own minuses. I have ways that I think I want to do things that are different that can make us stand out when it comes to the, not only the types of stories we tell, but the ways we tell them, and then incorporating that whole multimedia functionality in it, I think, gives us a leg up. And um, that was the, the foundation that we built on when coming up with the story ideas, that it was just trying to come up with with uh, concepts that would be timeless, so that if somebody even now goes back and downloads that issue from October when it came out, it's not going to feel old. You're going to have stories in there that are still relevant. And uh, the same with the current issue. While it has a central baseball theme, given the time of year that we've released it, these are stories and, and themes and concepts that that uh, aren't going to be old in, in a couple of weeks. They're going to uh, have that evergreen tone to them. And uh, that's what we want to do. We want to put good, smart editorial out there. Um, sports has been underserved in that way for for decades. And uh, we, we want to be different in that way because you have to differentiate yourself, especially in a sports market. You know, with the wrestling publication, we're not really going to have any competition. But um, with, with MVP, with the sports, we definitely have to be mindful of that. So the first step is, is developing the app through the programming and then deciding on content. And then I guess the third thing is who's going to write it. Tell us a little about about your writers, how you found them, and how they're finding stories about people like Keith Oberman and getting access to guys like Mike Trout. Well, with the... Uh Publication is very much a bootstrap operation at this point, you know, and and uh, being entrepreneurial in that way. And that's one of the things that I think is exciting is that we're showing that uh, you don't have to be a big house publishing house in Manhattan in a multi-floor, you know, skyscraper with uh, dozens of people running around and the big fancy mahogany, <laughs> you know, boardroom table to be able to do this vent a venture like this. You can have people that come in with just a centrally focused uh, passion and goal to uh, develop something new and help help maybe change an industry. And, um, you know, when you talk to people and I show people what we've been able to do, I had a prototype, some screenshots before we put the first issue out and showed examples of other magazines and got people pretty excited about our capabilities. And, 
uh, we've been able to recruit people that way. I do a lot of it myself also because I have the experience. Um, you know, I've been there. I've won awards with, with uh, numerous print and web-based publications. So for the sake of getting the, uh, the reputation established, uh, you know, and that high quality of content and, and the design and everything else that I want to get out there, you know, I've been a little more hands-on than I really want to be. I want to work, um, you know, on the business, not in the, not in the business, so to speak, take more of a 20,000-foot uh, view. Um, but that takes time, and in the meantime, we've got people out of contributing, um, you know, with writing, with video, columns, uh, you know, it's really, like I said earlier, only limited by the imagination. And, and um, one of the other things I want to really do, too, is give opportunities to some of these great young talent, you know, talented collegiate minds that are coming out of their own individual universities, wherever it may be. I'm working on relationships with Arizona State. I want to tap into that network there at the Cronkite School, and really I could do it nationwide. Uh, maybe be a platform for people to get their feet wet, establish their names, and then move on to bigger and better things. And you know, in the meantime, build MVP as well. So um, you know, that's essentially how we how we approach that. What are your goals in terms of uh, how often do you want MVP? I know right now you're getting ready to launch the wrestling magazine. You just put out a new issue, MVP. How how often are you gonna? Uh, do you eventually want to do this monthly or weekly or daily or how often do you want to see this eventually uh, evolved coming out? Right now, the um, frequency is being dictated by two things. One, time, and uh, two, the uh, response we're getting in terms of subscriptions and downloads, et cetera, um, you know, to see just what the market is like and also allowing more iPad and tablet sales to um, get out there and let that number grow. By the end of the decade, which is only six and a half years away, which in business is nothing, there's predicted to be about a billion tablets out there in the market or close to it, and that's going to you know, it's at uh, seven times the larger market than we have now. So we're, we're growing gradually as the market grows and as the evolution and um, acceptance of reading digital magazines grows. So uh, ultimately, you know, I, I could say monthly or even more frequent than monthly, but I, I don't ultimately know how this segment of the publishing industry is going to eventually define itself. And I just want to keep flexible enough to be able to move with the demands of, of the readers who are downloading digital magazines. If it turns out that it's okay to stay on the same publishing cycle as a print magazine, then so be it. But if it turns out that being digital affords different expectations and liberties, etc., then uh, we'll be ready to make those adjustments as they come to. And at this point, we're just kind of hopscotching. We're going to be bi-monthly with both uh, publications. So as we're working on one, the other one is getting finalized and vice versa, and then just make changes from there. We'll lay it out there for our, for our listeners. Tell us where you can find it, how to do it, all the X's and O's so that more people can, can be reading MVP Magazine. Well, if you go into the iTunes store, all you have to do is go up to the search window in the top right corner, type in MVP Magazine, and uh, we'll be one of two publications that come up. One is ours, and the other one is uh, some like Asian magazine. I can't, it's, it's in, I think, Chinese or some foreign language, so you won't mistake the two is my point. And if you download the app, we have two issues in there now. The first one is free, and that's so you can see what we're all about. You can download uh, the entire issue at no cost. You'll see some of the features we have, like Vladimir Klitschko and Kurt Manifee and, and a number of other people. Give you an idea of what we're about. The new issue and going forward, we're going to be paid. It's a buck ninety-nine for an issue, but we have 20 pieces of editorial in there and multimedia. I mean, it's packed with, with content. And uh, you can subscribe for a year, six issues, five ninety-nine, so it's nothing. You know, I mean, it's really low cost at this point. Um, 
and you can check out what we're all about. And uh, Turnbuckle is uh, targeted to launch middle to end of next month, and it'll be the same process. Just go into the store. Uh, you can go to Newsstand or iTunes and just do a search, and, and we'll come up. You can also find uh, some more information on Twitter. It's at MVP underscore media. That's correct, right? Absolutely, and then Turnbuckle Mag for uh, the other publication. And what about writers? We have a lot of young uh, writers who listen to this show. You, you want to be contacted by them or not quite yet? Absolutely. The, the more the better. I, I, uh, I don't claim by any means to know everything or have all the ideas. So ron at mvptoday.com and uh, pitch away. I'm all ears. Well, Ron, I'll tell you what, I love the issues uh, that I've read so far. It seems like a really cool venture. I'm going to be following it. Definitely have the support of the sportscasters. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the show today, and uh, let's do it again. Maybe when Turnbuckle launches, you can tell us what that's all about. Absolutely. I appreciate the interest, and thanks for having me on. Steve. Thank you. All right, I want to thank all our guests today, Jenny from The Monday Morning Quarterback, Elizabeth from ESPN.com, and Ron from MVP Magazine. Thanks to everyone for being on the show. Don't forget you find us www.sports-casters.com. You can also email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and please follow us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. We got a lot in the works in terms of previewing the football season. We kind of have a, a pretty ambitious plan of what we'd like to do We'll see how much of it comes together. But the month of August should be a pretty busy one yeah. for the sportscasters. I would think there won't be a week in August where we have only one show to put up. Right. I would think during August we're going to be doing our regular show. We want to preview the college football season. We want to preview the NFL season. We want to do a fantasy-only show. And then we might do some team previews, too. I think we'll probably at least do four team previews, maybe a couple more. Obviously, we don't have time to do 30. Or whatever. We, we we thought we were going to do that the one year, and I think we got to like five. Well, what we wanted <laughs> to do was one blog for each team. Right, right. You know, and we, we didn't necessarily have a, a time on it. Like no, we it's to be throughout the whole year. Do them throughout. Right. But for some reason, bloggers got like... Scarce. They, they just didn't want to... Like, they were... Like, you want to feature my blog? No, I'm too busy. Yeah. Like, I don't know what's with bloggers sometimes. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Blog. Like... All right, never mind, Jets blogger. Right. You know, just because you got some pub on the Mike Francesa show for something you said about Rex Ryan one day, now you're too cool to come on a podcast. Oh, well. Whatever. All right, go ahead. All right, one more thing for me this week. It's going to be a little bit more fantasy, and uh, we can get excited about fantasy sometimes on the show, and we're not good at hiding it, but I'm going to talk a little bit more wax poetic, if you will, about the fantasy draft. Uh I've been to drafts before where people will be not there and they'll that have sucks. handed in a sheet for to be drafted off or they'll be called or they will set their draft to auto after selecting their list. Didn't and we have someone Skyping in once because they were too hungover from we a did. Stag, stag? Skyping, no, that's that sucks too. Yeah, And to me, it's not even about drafting the team. It's uh, when are you going to have a chance to hang out with 12 friends uh, drinking, eating good food, all that stuff, hanging out, laughing, picking on each other, ball busting, all that stuff. Running the train on Mrs. Caster. <laughs> well, maybe this should, no. <laughs> no. That was inappropriate. Go ahead. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, all that good stuff. When are you going to get a chance to hang out with all your friends and do that again? Uh, once a year maybe that happens, and that's, that's during the fantasy draft. So I love, love the draft. I look super forward to it. 
in a lot of ways, this is the best time of the football year and the worst time because this, it stinks because the summer's ending and you kind of have to wait. And like we talked about earlier about holding your breath during preseason games, that stuff all sucks. But it all leads up to the draft, and the draft should be the best, most fun day of the year. It's the only time your entire league is going to be together unless you have some cool rules that where you get together other times. But go to your draft. I have a very specific rule in my league. If you're going to be in it, you got to draft. Uh, if you're a commissioner, try to schedule it far enough ahead that everyone can be there because it's just a ton of fun. And who wants to draft off a piece of paper? You know what? It's incredible how easy it is to get everyone together for the draft and how hard it is to get anyone together for any other purpose, whether <laughs> right. it be like an awards type of thing at the end of the year sure. or the rules meeting. It just seems like those things are impossible. But even if it takes you two or three dates thrown out, you can always find a day where it seems like everyone will come to the draft. But, yeah, but everyone everything should be else is impossible. It's just laughs and drinking and eating and Picking your football. It's like they say about preseason. Like everyone at that time is zero and zero. Everyone's optimistic. Everyone loves their team at the end of the draft. And it's just a really good time. So go to your draft. One last thing for the show today. Not necessarily the most exciting way to end the show. But man, that Tim Hudson injury last week was just devastating. I was actually watching the game on SNY, Braves and Mets, and Tim Hudson was pitching a gem. And actually, I was following it on Twitter. I knew Tim Hudson's wife was there. Kind of an interesting side story. A few years ago, a few years ago, Miss Caster, my Uncle Paul, and myself were down in Florida. And we went to a couple of Braves spring training games. Because the Braves actually have spring training right on Disney property. Okay. And Tim Hudson started one of those games. And his wife sat right behind us with their two boys, who were pretty young at the time. And they're kind of like all over the place. And they bumped into me a couple times. And she's like, I'm sorry. I'm like, ah, oh, it's no big deal, you know. So Tim Hudson's family, not that I know him, but sat by them once at a game. And I knew that they were at the game, wife and his kids. Ugh. And he's pitching just a sweet game. And ground ball gets hit. First baseman fields it. Freddie Freeman fields it. Hudson goes over to cover the bag. And the Mets player, who I believe was Eric Young Jr., ended up stepping on Hudson which I'm surprised doesn't happen more. more often, right. And it's just a devastating ankle injury. Hudson goes down. You can tell right away he's in a lot of pain. Uh, he ends up getting carted off the field. They called it an ankle fracture. I haven't heard if it was a fracture where like the bone was out, but it sure kind of looked like it. Yeah, it's, you can see that there's a video of it on YouTube. It's, it's pretty, uh, it looks rough. Yeah, it's an awful injury, and you're just thinking. You're watching that real time, and you're thinking, wow, this guy is pitching a great game in front of his wife and his kids, and what a disastrous turn it took. Real quick, we don't normally do a lot of like talking during this thing, but this is a dumb question too. Do they have like that double bag like they have in softball, like in bar league softball? No, they don't. They should probably consider that mostly on first base because you don't get those bang bang plays right. at most other bases. But they kind of I, they have the neighborhood rule on second base, even though it's not an official rule. Yeah, I can't believe this doesn't happen more. Right, yeah. You it know, is, because it's so bang, bang. and They're just running at each other, basically. Hudson ended up getting carted off. The Mets player who stepped on him was kind of tearing up and real apologetic, and it was real good of Tim Hudson's wife. She's on Twitter. I don't think Tim Hudson is, and she kind of tweeted out some things like, you know, you're one of the good guys, Eric. You know, Tim has wishing the best for you and everything. And so that was really cool. And hopefully Hudson will be back next year. The bad news is he's not going to be around for what seems like a really cool brave season. And that might've been his last 
maybe that might be his last moment as a Brave. I know his contract is maybe up. And uh, it was just, it was really a disappointing thing. So hopefully Hudson recovers and is a Brave again because it'd be sad for that to be the way his Braves career ends.